Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take on an expansion, the Rise of Ix expansion for Dune Imperium. But before we jump into that conversation, I've got some poll results for you. This week I asked on Twitter, which type of interaction is your favorite in board games? And I gave four options. I said race for benefit, uh, direct conflict, shared incentive, or nothing. I said, let me do my own thing, which is I don't want any interaction at all. So we had a few people that responded. I want to mention some of their answers on this before we get into the poll results. But what did you guys say on this poll? I put that my favorite type of interaction in board games was none of your answers, Tim. I put that it was direct interaction, not necessarily direct confrontation. Um, By that, I mean games where you're not just fighty, fighty, fighty the whole time, but games where there's some engagement. Maybe you have to talk across the table about a certain situation. Maybe there is a negotiation that's occurring or a trade, or you take a look at like Dune, the original Dune, where there's this alliance mechanism. And now two of you are making plans together, trying to develop this whole strategy. So it's not necessarily conflict that I would say. It's that it's that direct interaction where you're engaging with the people at the table. You wouldn't call that negotiation or that trading shared incentive since both people have some incentive to be involved in that decision? I wouldn't. Didn't you earlier in that discussion, Tim, just give an example of shared incentive? And it was nothing like the examples I just gave yeah. right now. Yeah, fair enough. That's fine. Yeah, Obviously, there's a lot of different ways to interact in a game, and I couldn't cover them all in a four option Twitter poll. So, okay. Fair enough, Chris. We, we do seem to have a lot of definitional problems. In these, <laughs> Twitter in these does polls. not make this easy. does not make it easy. <laughs> Chris, what did you answer on that poll? Uh, you know, this one's so hard because I like all of them. I think they're all great mechanisms. I think they're all great ways to interact. I just like to have interaction. But I think my answer that I gave in the actual poll was direct conflict. And trouble with that answer though is that it really is a crapshoot that it's a high risk high reward kind of interaction because it can either be really exciting or it can be really depressing because we've all been in those games where you throw a handful of dice and against all odds you roll ones or whatever and all of a sudden your game's over and there's no good reason for that and that feels horrible nobody likes that but on the other hand, you know, if, if done properly, then you can have um, you, you can have a great direct conflict. And we're in the middle of a game of Blood Rage right now. And I love that the direct conflict. But it's all this kind of cat and mouse and who throws down the right card. And can you read each other's minds, which I still am convinced that Tim's got black magic that he knows, you know, what what card he needs to throw down. But, you know, so it, it can be really great or it can be really bad. So I, I have to go with that. That's my gut. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. One of our listeners, Board Game Chatterbox, asked, can you give me some examples? So I did in the Twitter results, and I think some people referenced these. I said race for benefit would be things like worker placement blocking, drafting from a central pool, moving up a track to achieve a benefit first. So a lot of opportunities to just be like not you know necessarily taking something from somebody else, but just trying to beat them to it or do it in the right order. I said shared incentive. Brass Birmingham is a great example. I build a route then you can use it also. I get some benefit when you do Lords of Waterdeep with the buildings that you build. That's another example of a shared incentive. I said direct conflict or take that would be like I target you and remove something. 
That'd be a game like Magic the Gathering, where you literally kill a creature on the other side of the board, or in a Troops on the Map game, where you go in and move into a space and get in a conflict, you wipe them out. So lots of those types of things. Adam identified, obviously, a completely new version. Now, when I answered the poll, I was thinking of some of the cool interactions we had with like Brass Birmingham lately. And so I actually answered the shared incentive, because I think it leads to some really interesting opportunities to to do stuff that other people have to interact with. But then the more I thought about it and read some other answers, I was like, yeah, I really like race for benefit. I like the Euro things where you're racing for stuff. And we played Le Granja last week, which had choosing the, the roof tiles first, racing up the track to be first player, dice drafting, a lot of those things. It also had the area control, which has a little bit of direct conflict too. A couple uh, listeners answered on here. Zoe Allred said, I feel like games provide the safest space to explore direct conflict. So she said shared incentives and racing for a goal just watered down the most interesting part of the conflict and creates plausible deniability for what should be the exciting tension point. Hmm. You know, fair enough. That doesn't, like, I'm not looking for conflict even when it's in a safe space. So that doesn't necessarily get me excited. But there's there's some interesting uh, thoughts there. I just want to say Zoe's quote there is just fantastically articulated. That is perfectly spelled out. Well done. Absolutely. Uh, Scott and Phil from Right Down the Blackboard Gaming, which are uh, a couple of reviewers out of Los Angeles, really great to interact with on here. But they say, race for benefit because I love that feeling of competition and the stress that another player will snatch a worker placement spot, specific card, etc. Euro games are generally my favorite when they bring out that kind of tension. And yeah, I totally agree on that. That's I think that's kind of what drives me with Euro games too, is that that race to try to beat somebody else, do it as efficiently as possible so I can get it before they do. Definitely a board game podcast. I love the stress of race for benefit, uh, especially in games like Agricola where the benefits keep improving. Yeah, like Zolkin is a great example, Chris, where, you know, that food track, you add a food every time. And every time I'm like, oh, should I go and get that food this time? Now it'll be it'll be there next time. Chris isn't going to place a worker there. And then he inevitably takes it every single time we get that. And Meeple and the Moose said, I love shared incentives. Feels great when you're able to weasel in on someone else's hard work or action. Concordia does this particularly well. And a couple people mentioned Concordia. That's a great example of where when they do a trade action, you fl- they flip over that tile and you get you know you get the benefit in the region for it. Uh, so that's pretty cool. So yeah, a lot of fun uh, answers on here. If you don't follow us on Twitter, you should go check out that poll question because there was some some pretty good conversation on that one. Any other thoughts on interaction? The more I think about it, the more the reason I really enjoy that direct confrontation or interaction is you get a more direct look at someone's insights when they're playing a game and maybe how they're thinking and what exactly they're going for. And it's not kind of disguised to these layers of race for this space and block this to block that. You get you know a direct interaction with the player across from you as to what they might be thinking and the kind of person they are and how they live their life. And I don't know, maybe not that far, but just some more insights. And I think that's what I enjoy about the direct confrontation. Yeah. Well, I've got a question about the direct confrontation. And so here we are, public podcast. We're in a safe space. So I have a question for you guys (laughs) and I'll answer it too. But when you're playing a game that is filled with direct conflict, generally a meeples on a map kind of game, do you get angry if you lose a big battle? Yeah, I do have bad feelings sometimes. And I also feel bad sometimes when I clearly really impacted somebody else's game. So I would say that's probably part of why I don't love those games is that I wouldn't say I get angry necessarily, but I definitely sometimes it makes me unhappy. It takes away some of the joy 
it depends a little bit on my mindset too. Some days I can go into and be like, you know what, this is, I just got to go sit down here, have fun and not stress about it and, you know, cheer for everybody at the table, even if it's, you know, me losing. But sometimes I just don't have that mindset and I can sit there and just get really frustrated or, oh, man, this game is ruined for me, you know, and it just, it can definitely cause some negative feelings. This is a great question, Chris. For me, it's the thrill of that moment. I know I might win. I know I might lose, which probably is going to happen. But the thrill of that moment, and sometimes I will win, and sometimes I'm going to have this heartbreaking loss. That's just, like you said, a safe space to go explore those moments and take the risk. And you might explode and have it all just fall back in your face. Who cares? It's a game. Like I, I just want to have those moments and explore it. So I love this question, Chris. What about you? You know, I have to admit, this is one reason why I have been shying away more and more from the big direct conflict games. And I know this is, it sounds ridiculous because I just answered that I like direct conflict the best, but this really is a product of having that big risk, big reward. I get frustrated. I mean, especially in a game where there's a lot of chance. And I know Tim's probably grinning at this because he hates dice rolling games, but I'm thinking of probably the best example of this, we've played a few times Cthulhu Wars, where you're just rolling these huge handfuls of dice and you can stack the odds in your favor, but in the end, it's all gonna come down to what you roll on those dice. And frequently, at least for me, I come up with exactly the thing that I didn't wanna have. And when that happens, man, it can really ruin my experience. And that's a bummer. And so even though I feel like the highs are particularly high in a situation like that, if you end up having a successful attack or a successful game, the lows are low enough that it actually frustrates me and I kind of find myself shying away from those games. Now, interestingly, I I contrast that with a game like Blood Rage, where I think I'm much more... I'm much more accepting of having someone legitimately outplay me than I am of someone winning because they rolled a bunch of good dice. I mean, we played a game, you alluded to it last week, Adam, where we played against him. Every turn, he was playing just the right card, and I'm going to assume that there is some brilliance going on there. Um, But you know that I have to grudgingly say, man, that that was well done. Whereas if I throw a handful of dice and I roll all ones, oh, it just burns me. It just, it really bothers me. Yeah, I, that that makes sense, Chris. I had a moment in Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy on our last play of that where it felt like that, where you know I was evenly placed. We should have had a tough conflict and could have come off either way, but instead you rolled all big numbers and I rolled all blank faces in that game, and that was just so it's so annoying when that happens. Adam, you had we had a game today where you kind of um, maybe raised a little bit of salty language. Uh, in Blood Rage, where, um, <laughs> you know, you would go over in the middle, and you've got, like, seven power, and I had one little uh, warrior in there, one power, and I was like, why did I even go in here? I just wasted that guy, and it just ended up where, like, I played a six card, and you didn't have anything, and I managed to just, be- oh, and I had a plus two card on top of it, too, so I managed to take the middle section in that combat, and, like, I've never seen you swear in text (laughs) (laughs) well a part of that was for the humorous effect um i mean of course when i saw that i was like given the cards i had in my hand too there was a freak out sesh there was a huge freak out sesh at my house i was like you know yelling at the computer screen but it's all in good fun i know it is so i put that in the thing to add to the moment of it to just be ridiculous And I know, like, uh, yeah, it's it could be frustrating, but it's, there's a spectrum, right? You know, that one, I just, I shot myself in the foot. I could have done something totally different, but I didn't. 
And uh, there is a spectrum, I think, Chris, for this, like you're saying, Cthulhu Wars, an eclipse sometimes. It's just throw the dice. You can stack the odds in your favor a little bit, but it does come down to what comes up on the face of those dice. So I think it's finding that balance between this totally chaotic mode and something where at least you feel like you have the agency to control what's happening and what's going on. And of course, I love all those other kind of interactions too when they're when they're done nicely. I can appreciate a nice shared incentive and a race for a benefit. But I think that the biggest moments for me are some of those games with that direct conflict. So that's what I come back to. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let me just read the poll results really quick and then we'll move on. So the, uh, people answered race for benefit was 29%, direct conflict 23%, shared incentive was 30%. So that and race for benefit were basically neck and neck tied. And then let me do my own thing was 18%. So there's a group of people that really just leave me alone. I want to do my own thing while I'm playing a game. And I definitely feel that way with some games where I'm just like, okay, I've got this great plan and engine and yeah, maybe I should just play it solo then, but it's still fun to be around the table with people, you know, <laughs> when you're hanging out with your friends and still get to do those fun, those fun puzzles. All right, cool. Well, let's move on to talk about Dune Imperium, The Rise of Ix. Now, this is the first time we've actually featured an expansion on our program before, so this might feel a little bit different than our normal review episodes. We did do a full review of Dune Imperium uh, about a year ago, back on episode 20. So if you want to go back, hear a description of the game, hear our original thoughts on that, feel f- feel free to go back and take a listen to that one. We're not going to go into all the, the game rules of Dune Imperium, but we will be touching on most of the new features of the Rise of X as we're talking about this expansion. And we're also going to give Chris to, uh, a chance to give his thoughts on the game in general because he wasn't on that original review. Steve joined us on that particular one. So if Chris has anything to offer about do an Imperium that he didn't get to say before, he may jump in with that. Let's go ahead and jump into the gameplay and mechanisms and the Rise of X expansion, and, and let's talk about that. Chris, why don't you start out? This is like your third play of Dune Imperium. Give us your quick thoughts on the, the game in general. Well, my overall impression of this game is that I absolutely love it, which is kind of strange considering the fact that I have completely not figured this one out yet, and I, I lose dramatically every time. So it's it's actually kind of embarrassing how bad I lose at this game. But at the same time, I really enjoy it. I think it has it's a great IP. I think it's really interesting the way that they adapted the movie and the visuals and the production and all that, which we'll get into later. But it, the way that it was adapted to the board game, I think, is terrific. I think that the combination of worker placement with a minimal level of low-intensity conflict is really attractive which is actually interesting an interesting tie in to what we were just talking about. The conflict in Dune Imperium is actually really nice because it's very it's very clear and there's no dice involved and you know there may be somebody who throws down a card that creates something surprising like a you know an ambush or what have you that adds some more swords to their attack, but you generally know how the combat is going to go based on the addition of the you know, troops over time. And so there's there's no big surprises there generally. And I think that's really nice. But beyond that, just the, the variety of choices that you have, the options are all interesting. The paths to victory are, I think, very many. I haven't actually found any of them yet, but but they're there. And uh, and this is a game that overall I, I just want to keep coming back to, even though I've I've done very poorly at it. And I've only played it a few times. So 
just based on my few plays, I think it's a great game. Adam, any double takes from you based since our review last year? You've had a chance to play this quite a bit over the last year, but anything you think maybe changed with your opinion or that you want to just repeat? Well, coming back to this game, I haven't played it as frequently as we were playing it early in the year. And gosh, I missed it. It's, this game is just incredible. It keeps going up for me. I think it's still elevating, Tim. I think I said it was my all-time favorite or near the top. It's even further at the top and pulling away. So that's how I feel about the game at this moment. What about you, Tim? Yeah, so my love for this game has really only grown since we played it on that episode a year ago and reviewed it. We've had a chance to play it a lot since then. I always look forward to it. It's always an exciting game. There were a couple kind of dominant strategies that were starting to feel a little bit stale, started to feel like things were getting a little bit repetitive. So I'm going to jump in with one of the parts of this expansion that I think is really important. It's not the it's not the sexiest part of the expansion. It's not the one that I want to talk about the most, but I think it's the one that had the most impact from my enjoyment of the game. And that is that there is now a, a board that covers over a section of the original board and replaces some of the worker placement spots up there. That board gives you some trade options. The trade is a really interesting mechanism there, but most importantly, it blocks off a couple spots that were really causing people to just push for those right away, causing some repetitive actions. And so I really love what that did. But what about you guys now that we're tr- talking about the expansion? Chris, what was you know a mechanism that this expansion added that, that stood out to you? Well, I like the new Ixian technologies. And because we were playing with the new expansion for the first time, my plan was I'm going to go all in on that and I'm going to try to explore that as much as I can. And so you know we had talked earlier a little bit about how many different paths to victory there are and different strategies. And so I said, I'm gonna go all in on technologies. I'm gonna go for the dreadnoughts. It just happened that I had the leader who also had the dreadnought ability. In other words, the uh, that my dreadnoughts were worth three attack points versus, or excuse me, worth four attack points versus three attack points, which is the standard for a dreadnought. And so it made sense for me to try to get those dreadnoughts because then I could be an unstoppable force in combat, at least theoretically. And so I really went in big on those technologies. And I, oh, that was the other thing about my leader is that he also had the ability with the signet ring to do a technology. And so I really focused on that. And I can definitely see where that would have been an effective strategy. And it was interesting because it gave me something entirely different to do than what you guys were doing, who might have been focusing on alliances or focusing on you know heavy spice trade or something like that i was doing something that felt very much my own in this game and it didn't win the game for me but it really felt like something that if i knew how to exploit it better that i could have really made something out of i think the technologies is one of the most interesting thing about this because basically it gives people the opportunity to purchase game changing abilities you know kind of really parts of their engine that they can build up which doesn't exist in the original dune there is engine building there obviously your deck is the main thing but to get an ongoing ability isn't something that you really had the opportunity to get in dune imperium to start with so that was fantastic only three available at the start of the game and as you purchase them new ones come up and it really changes up what people are going to be to do what you can combo with your deck what you can combo with your with your player power really adds a lot of variability to the game 
Yeah, just overall, this adds a lot more ways to kind of synergize different aspects, different spots on the worker board, different leader powers with this spot over here, with this card over here. It gives you a few more of those kind of comboing up, kind of building a team or designing a team around a specific strategy or a couple different things that feed off each other, which I don't think were there as much in just the base game. So that's kind of what I see with this expansion. Chris, I see you nodding in your head. What do you think of that kind of perception of the expansion here? Yeah, I feel like in the original game, there were all variations on the same strategy. I feel like the expansion creates a new universe of strategies that you can undertake. Not sure if that's an accurate way of saying it, but but that's the way it felt to me. It felt like to me like we were choosing sort of it was almost a choose your own adventure. You know, which which version of this game do I want to play? And I thought that was I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, now aside from the some of the new mechanisms that we've started to talk about, one of the things that I like in a good expansion is that it just added more stuff. More of the same things that the game does by more variety in the card deck, you know, the um uh, what's the the main cards called in this game? The Imperium, Imperium cards. Deck or the, the Imperium, Imperium cards. Yeah. yeah. So like a ton of new Imperium cards. We get to see a huge variety of those come up in this game. New factions, new starting player powers, which were all fun and interesting and unique and felt very different from the base game factions. So that's a lot of variety. New intrigue cards. I got to see a few very intrigue cards there. So everything that the base game does great and is a lot of fun with but starts to feel just a little bit repetitive over a lot of plays. It it fixes it just by adding a lot of different things in there. In the Imperium deck, one of the things that was cool about it is that there's a couple new mechanisms that get added into those cards that give you some new combo opportunities. For example, some of the cards would give you a benefit if you discarded them, and now there are other cards that would get a benefit for discarding a card. And so some cool little things to combo up that were outside of the original mix of, of um mechanisms before it's an interesting idea that i didn't see because they never came up but i would have liked to have seen was the infiltrator cards and those were cards where you could when, when you played the card it gave you the opportunity to place your character your worker on the same spot that somebody else had already occupied which strikes me as pretty powerful and that would be very interesting to use we didn't see any come up, so I'm not sure if that had something to do with the mod that we were playing on Tabletop Simulator or if there's actually that few of them in the in the game itself. But I thought that was something very interesting, and I would have liked to have seen more of it. Now, what do you guys think about that freighter, that, what is it, the Chome board? Is that what it was? Where basically there's like these spaces that you can take a freighter movement. And so the freighter movement would let you move up this track that had increasing benefits but you had to take your freighter off and put it back at the bottom of the track to actually get all of the benefits that you that you'd reached i felt like it was a nice twist it seemed like a pretty hot spot in our game every time i looked up there somebody was already in that spot so i didn't have a chance to go there much but that mechanism seems like a nice alternate to what was available for which you know wasn't much trade spice into solari and so I like that kind of cascade mechanism you can build up. You could kind of knock it down and get all this stuff along the way. And the way you could, if you could get that two spot one, like you got Tim, you could go up to the top and then use it to draw it back down, which was super powerful and cool to see. So I'm still kind of flip-flopping it in my mind if I thought it adds that much. I think it does. I'm still just processing it a little bit. What about you, Chris? What do you think? Yeah, I totally get what you mean, Adam. And I think part of the 
I think part of your ambivalence there probably had to do with the fact that nobody really exploited that track until the very end of the game when Tim had already you know beat us by like twice the number of points we had and then did it, I don't know, just to rub it in or whatever. <laughs> but you know, w- w- there were these incredibly strong powers that came from that track that nobody really used. And just to, to clarify, that as you move up this track, and there were three spaces with increasingly powerful benefits, and when you when you moved, you could either move up the track or you could bring your guy back. And if you got up to the top, you got all three benefits from the lower tracks, and there was quite a bit that you could gain out of that. I mean, that would be a very powerful turn if you were to do that. I think the farthest up any of us got was the second tier, maybe, and then Tim proceeded to the third after he'd already beat us. So really nobody made that much use of it. But I imagine that if you were able to really kind of, you know, point yourself in that direction earlier on in the game, in other words, if we had understood it better and had some experience with it, we could have really exploited that in a way that would be would have been useful throughout the game, I think. We just didn't do it. But I think the key is that the reason you couldn't exploit it more is because everybody was was going after it. And the reason everybody was going after it, I mean, aside from it being an interesting new mechanism to pursue, is that it was one of the only spaces to get Solari in the game. So if you take that lower one, you at least get one Solari for it. So it gave you an opportunity to try to get to some of the other spaces with Solari, but also, if you even just got up the first space and then we moved the freighter to the bottom, then you'd get five Solari out of it. And so everybody was pushing for that. So the only way that someone's really going to be able to exploit it is to, re- to reuse that space over and over again. And when everyone else is fighting for it, nobody had a chance to do it that much, which I think is exactly what that type of mechanism should do. It could give somebody, if they're the only ones pursuing it, some really strong options, but it means they're not pursuing other things. In our case, we all kind of fought over it, stopped each other from abusing it too much, and all got some minor benefits from it, which was pretty pretty entertaining. But keep in mind, too, that there was a second spot there. It was the higher of the two spots on that track. You had to have two levels of influence with the Spacing Guild. And I don't think anybody used that space until the very end of the game when you finally used it. And it's not like it's that hard to get two levels of influence with any of the guilds. And so, I mean, that's something that if we had really focused on it, you know, a number of us could have done. And so that would have, you know, would have been twice as many spaces available to us. We just didn't do it. So I, in retrospect, I would have loved to gone back and actually done more with that. But we just didn't. We didn't. That's one kind of nuance was that it's to me, it is kind of tough to get to influence with the guild. One, because you, one of the spaces what just gives you a fold space card, which is okay. And the other one is the highliner spot, which you need six mm-hmm. spice to go there. It's a better kind of late in the game play if you're trying to win a battle. Maybe unless everyone else has dreadnoughts and you don't, then maybe it's not so good anymore. And there's other ways to go up tracks, but I wasn't necessarily getting any of those. So again, it's a, a target of opportunity. Are you going to be able to get two influence with a guild? Are you going to want to work that guild? Are you going to be able to get more highliner stuff? early in the game or later in the game. So I don't know. It's a little bit nuanced to get up there and work that guild track. I don't know. It's different. I'm still, that's still something that I'm processing. Tim, what do you think about the guild track getting too influenced there and how easy is that to do? I don't think it's easy at all. And and that track is not that appealing either. Unless you get the six spice to go there right. and get that highliner space, it's not that great of a track because all you're doing is getting a card you can use for a later turn versus if you're going to use your, um, you know, the, the card the, the card that lets you go up any of the faction alliances, you could be going down to the Fremen track and getting water or getting troops or you could mm-hmm. be getting intrigue cards on the, 
you know, Benny Deseret track, or you could be getting money on the top track. So that is usually my least favorite track. And I think that's another thing that this particular um, mechanism does is it's trying to push people to say, Hey, people aren't using that as much as other tracks. Let's make it more appealing to them. And now there's a benefit for getting up a little bit higher. Now you can get some other benefits around the board. And I think that's great. I think the, the, the key of this whole expansion is that they obviously gave more variability for those of us that like to play this game a lot and want to keep going back to it. And that's a blast, but they really did. It seems to me, look at some of the things that come out of repeated plays and fix them, you know, like made the whole, made more strategies viable, made more, more different ways you could go and pivot to. And and this game is a lot about tactical choices every round. And it's what cards that I draw this round. So what opportunities do I have? Who else is going to conflict? What's the benefit for conflict? All of those things were always the interesting parts about this game is that you're always making these little tactical choices to, to try to get that leg up, to get that one little point that you can get this time. And this game just expanded and it blew it up so that there are so many more fun, different choices and decisions to make. And and I think that uh, second space on the, the shipping guild is just one example of that. Well, it's interesting you say that. So I'm thinking about that space and I'm sort of replaying the game in my head now. And you had commented on how that particular guild was not that attract That track was not that attractive because it didn't get you that much. But looking at it in light of the expansion, it's not that hard to move up two levels. It may not be super exciting to get to fold cards, but you could do it. You could do it pretty readily. And once you've done that, you've opened up all the possibilities of that that freighter track. And looking at it now, I'm thinking about all the ways in which I could have you know, utilized that and gotten these huge benefits if only earlier on in the game I had done that. Now, I did other things, and they didn't work out for me, and my game ended up sucking because of that. But I can look at it and see how, if I had done it differently, then you know that, that could have been a very different game. But I'm curious, did you guys feel when you were setting out on this that you were pursuing a particular strategy, or were you just kind of going turn by turn and seeing what looks like the most effective thing to do? That's a great question, Chris, and something that, you know, I flip-flopped on a bunch of times during this game. There's a part of me that's like, oh, this is an expansion. I want to explore all these things just because they're there to explore. So I got caught a little bit up in that. And I did have a few moments of, well, if I work this Emperor track and the Benny Jesuit track, how can those work together? Eh, not too well. Maybe I'll try to switch. I did think of trying to go to the guild, getting that second spot earlier in the game, and I had the opportunity And it was just too boring to me. I couldn't do it. I couldn't suffer that moment of boringness to have all these advantages later on. I think that was one thing about the expansion, which right now seems a little bit tough, but I think it overall and long term, it's a fantastic thing. There's so much there to explore, so many new strategies to kind of pursue that I was a bit overwhelmed this time. But does the game, the base game, lose its focus a little bit? Maybe but I think the advantages are there and what this game brings to it in a long-term sense. What about you, Tim? You have thoughts on any of my thoughts? Well, first to answer Chris's question, if I had a specific strategy I was going for, I 100% did. And I had a few that I was kind of looking at over the course of the game. But one of the tech cards that I picked up, and I had a choice on like the second round, I think, to pick up a tech card. And I almost picked up the one that would give me a water and then would give me more water if I won conflicts. But the other one that was available was one that gave you an endgame point if you got to the third space on all four tracks, the alliance tracks. And so my goal for the rest of the game was to pick up any cards that would let me take alliance spaces 
and move up those tracks just to take advantage of that one stupid little point, which I didn't even end up using because I think I only made it to, you know, when I ended the game, I, I had enough points and it didn't matter, but I didn't get to the third space on one of the tracks. So I did have a goal I was driving towards and it helped me with other areas. And at one point I picked up a card specifically because it would give me an alliance track symbol on it. But that thing also gave me a different goal that said, hey, if you reveal this card, you can trade in six Solari for a point. And I got to use that one time. So it kind of motivated me to build up some Solari to build that thing. So I think that's what this game always is, though. It's little, hey, there's a couple points available in conflict. I'm going to do what I can this round to go after him. There's a card in my deck that's going to let me take advantage of this thing. I'm going to go after it this time. I always find that in this game, and I just think that the expansion expanded the possibilities of what those little goals could be and where you could go with them. So, yeah, I think if you I think if you open your eyes and you're not a sucker, then opportunities. So, what about you, Chris? I'm guessing it was difficult for you to latch onto a strategy, and probably even more difficult to ignore all the stuff coming out of Tim's mouth right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he is a bit of a jack turkey. My problem is I latched on to a strategy and just wasn't very good at it. But there was a clear path laid out in front of me that someone who is better at this game could have actually taken advantage of. And in retrospect, I think that's one of the fascinating things about this expansion for this game is that it does create what appear to me to be more like clear paths. So... Like I mentioned before, my leader was someone who had the ability to take technologies with the signet ring and had more power in the uh, dreadnoughts. Looking at it now, I probably wasn't aggressive enough with my dreadnoughts because dreadnoughts are great because for one, they, they're used like troops, but they have the power of three troops, power of four troops if you're using my character. They don't go away after you fight with them. They just go back to your garrison. I mean, that's huge. So if you have two Dreadnoughts out there with my character, you have eight combat points every combat, even before you put a single ground troop out there. And so there's a clear strategy associated with that. And it was like, I think, four rounds before I even got into my first conflict. Because I was trying to do this and that and play around the edges and do all these various things without really focusing on getting my two Dreadnoughts out there in the battles able to use them every time, that would have been epic if I had been able to do that. But I didn't. And next time, you know, if I had that same character, I probably would try to do that. But I think there's more of that in the expansion than there was in the original game, where it felt more like you were sort of battling for the same things. Here you could kind of go off in your own different direction and try to do something a little bit unique to what everybody else was doing. And I think that's... I think that actually added a lot to the game. Yeah. So th there's one uh, there's one little thing I'm going to say about the expansion that I think is a, just a little bit of a ding on it, and that is that it is a scenario where there are some minor language rules in the core rule book that are replaced with the new expansion. And I don't love that because it means that, you know, getting back into the game six months from now, you want to check up on the rules, it's not going to match up perfectly. This is pretty minor. It's like where the term troops versus units has some impact based on how you deploy things and how they're used. Pretty minor, but that was one minor niggle I had, I think. Other than that, I have to say that I read the rules. I kind of learned what the mechanisms were in this. And I was like, I don't know if I want to add this to the game. I feel like it might dilute some of the, the core feelings, the excitement of the game. I was completely wrong. I think what this 
did is it just opened up new opportunities to have fun, different opportunities to do things, more variety that you're going to see, more factions to try out and experiment with. This expansion is, for me, a must-have. Anyone who likes Dune Imperium and has this game is going to benefit from the expansion. So, Adam, I know that you're a huge fan of this game. Do you agree with what Tim just said? Is this a game that you can still enjoy fully without having this expansion added to it? So I'm having some conflicted thoughts on this. I think if you're just coming in to do an Imperium, I don't think you need it right away. There's so much there in the base game. You play this game, I don't know, 50, 100 times, probably forever without this expansion and still have tons of fun playing it. Find new card combinations, new exploits. It's there for the base game this whole time. There's going to be dominant strategies that emerge, but you're going to find ways to counter those strategies. And I think that's part of the fun and the tightness that comes with the base game. But this expansion, if you're looking to explore new avenues, if you want to have some more kind of specialized pathways to victory that aren't the kind of the same old combinations that you're used to seeing in the base game, you can kind of go and do your own thing a little bit more than you could in the base game. There's all these different avenues. I think this expansion is amazing and it's only going to get better and better and better. The amount of stuff it adds for exploration and and just the multiplier it is to the game with such a finite number of things that it brings is pretty spectacular. Chris, you've only played the game, I think you said two or three times. Does you get any kind of the same feel from this expansion? Yeah, absolutely I do. I think that this is a great expansion. But at the same time, I think you know I'm new enough to it that I, I would still enjoy playing the base game. I think I would prefer to play it with the expansion, but... I'd be happy playing either one. Now, if I played several more games of the base game, I may feel like the expansion was more of a necessity. But but as it stands now, I, mean, I think they're they're great together. I think that the base game is great by itself. So I think either one's a winner. So, Tim, if you're going to teach Dune Imperium to somebody new, are you going to use the expansion or, or not? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. I think if it's a gamer, yes. If it was somebody that was a little bit, you know, less familiar with kind of mid to heavyweight games, then that would be a harder call because there's a few additional mechanisms you have to teach and, you know, spaces that you have to explain and icons and things like that. The problem with this as an expansion is that there's not it's not really a good modular way to say like, hey, I'm just going to add all these cards to the deck. And even if I don't want to teach the new mechanisms, I'll leave those tracks off because a lot of the cards reference the new mechanism. So I don't think you can really play with some of the cards or some of the factions, you know, like you can't really play with any of the expansion content without playing all the expansion content. Um, There might be a few cards you could flip in, but it would definitely be hard to separate the game back apart. I have a feeling that my gut would be that in almost every situation, I would just teach it with the expansion built in. It's kind of a a challenging enough game anyway, that it's not a game that I teach to really new gamers or people that prefer lighter games. So I, I don't know that there'd be too many situations where I wouldn't just go ahead and teach the expansion anyway, just because it's probably the right audience for it. Once all the stuff's mixed in, once all the cards are mixed, you're not going to take it back out. and <laughs> exactly. It's over at that point. Right. Guess what? Exactly. This is the game we're playing. That's it. <laughs> all right. Well, let's really quickly touch on the, on the production. The theme didn't change here. The artwork is pretty much the same style as the original game. So I have just one point on the production I want to mention, and that is the little Dreadnought tokens are pretty boring. Um, that's, that is, I think the only thing that I would say is, you know, like that's supposed to be this big, massive ship and ends up as being this little wooden ship meeple, um, would have loved to see something a little bit more 
uh, exciting for that component. And this is not a cheap expansion, you know, and mostly it's cardboard and some little wood pieces, but I'm finding this thing at retail for about 40 bucks, which is about what I paid for the base game. Maybe it's a $50 game. So it feels to me like it's probably a little overpriced for the components you get in a game. It's worth it still. It's it's such great content. That would be my only complaint and really my only thought on the on the production here. What about you guys? So you said that the theme didn't change much at all. So that brings up in my mind a question for both of you guys after having seen the new movie. I think neither of you were overly familiar with the movie and the IP. Neither was I. I didn't see the movie. And I've seen the old movie. But what do you guys think about the theme here? It was a recent poll question too. I thought this game, I'm going to go ahead and answer my own question first. I thought this game added a little bit more theme and different ways to kind of bring the guild into it and have them, you know, work the spice more and the chose more about the chome. And there's more just little subtle elements from the IP to make this game that much more thematic to me. And I thought that was a nice touch. The challenge was, is that like, I just watched the movie after knowing the game pretty well. And I felt like the movie kind of introduced me to all the characters that the game had to, had to show us. But now it's introduced a whole bunch of new characters and settings, guilds and stuff like that, that now I don't know about. So now I feel like I'm more confused, but I'm interested. Maybe it'll come up in the second part of the new movie. Maybe it'll, maybe it comes up in later books. I don't really know how this all fits in. I would just say that it probably pulled me more out of the theme because I don't know who these new people are, and what these new things are. Um, and then, you know, from a theme perspective, you know, it's cool with how they try to tie these Euro mechanisms into the theme of this game. And I think they did a pretty good job of it, but it's still a pretty much a Euro-y game. You know, you're moving up tracks, you're doing worker placement spaces. There's obviously a tie into the conflict and the different spaces on the board and the, the factions, but it, it feels very mechanical to me and it doesn't feel super thematic what you're doing on a turn-to-turn -turn basis. I don't mind that. I, I love the game for what it is. And I love a Euro that, that gives me good mechanisms and tries to put a nice coat of paint on it. I think Dune Imperium does that well, but I wouldn't say it's particularly thematic gameplay. What about you, Chris? Yeah, I'm kind of with you, Tim. I mean, this is not material that I was particularly familiar with. Um, I'm, I don't know where X is or, you know, what they do or why anybody would call their planet X, but you know, it was all new stuff. Now that said, you know, you could gather enough from the, the, just the basic, components of the game to know that this is a civilization that's big on technology and so they were selling their technologies or providing them and there's dreadnoughts and in various other things so i don't think it hurt a lot i don't think it added a ton for someone who's not familiar with the ip and i think that's really one of the keys here is that as someone who's not that familiar with the ip i was able to enjoy it and appreciate it but i think that if someone was really familiar with the books it may have been even more meaningful as with so many IPs. So I guess it, it, the bottom line is I don't think it hurts anything and it probably does help something. It makes it even more exciting if you're a fan of the books. I agree with something Tim touched on that it is in general very difficult to put a theme on Euro mechanisms. Okay, we're going to trade this for this and this. But somehow this game does it exceptionally well, I feel like. It gives you these little things and a character where you can see like, oh, yeah, I can see why this character would up their alliance with the Bene Gesserit and then give you a card and then let you scrap another card. That totally may and give you an entry card because they're kind of trying to plot the future. 
the effort that this game does put into fitting each card into a theme, I think is really there. And you can really tell they tried hard to make something that you could at least, they would push you in the direction of a theme. The Shai Halud card, for instance, is the sandworm that the Fremen have sort of tamed, and they use that as helpers when they go and fight. They ride these things in, these giant sandworms. So I forget what it let you, but it added a bunch of combat to the combat system if you used it in a reveal turn, or it let you destroy a couple of troops like it was eating these other troops and turning that into swords. It just let you do some very neat things that you could see what it did and be like, oh yeah, I totally see how that fits in with the whole theme of the game. So I thought that was just a very nice touch that they did here. I think the quote of the night was when Tim said, they eat cards and poop out troops. <laughs> Maybe they're inspiring the Fremen to uh, fight by their side, so it's Fremen troops coming to their side, something like that. Oh, maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, any um, with this with this expansion, any exceptional moments or standout moments for you guys tonight? I'm gonna just jump on in on this one really quickly. I somehow won the game. I hit ten points when I think everybody else was not higher than five. Maybe somebody got to six. It was a pretty exciting win for me tonight. But I felt like I really pushed at it. Like I really had this strategy and I pursued it and I let you guys kind of go after each other in the conflict and I and I made it all pull together. So that was really exciting for me. And part of what drove that is the first couple rounds where there was a point in each of the first two conflicts available, I basically, you guys gave them to me. Like you didn't even try for them. I got a couple troops in there and just managed to hold on to them and nobody cared. So those two points were the only ones I got in conflict and I just stayed out of the conflicts after that and then got the, the other eight points I needed to. So it was for me, it was just really fun to have this strategy in mind and have these goals and, and have it all come together. So I love that. What about you, Chris? Any, any moments that stood out to you? Sadly, the big moment for me, other than, you know, seeing, looking up and seeing that you had 10, 12, 15 points, whatever, when I had like three, was the point where I actually did manage to start putting together my strategy. And it was the stuff that I talked about before where I was able to get both of my dreadnoughts out there with a leader who gave more power to dreadnoughts. So essentially, every battle, I would have had the opportunity to put out eight power even before you added any troops. And I had big plans for that. I thought we had like three or four rounds left to go, and I was going to go in there, and I was going to dominate every single battle. And in reality, even though I didn't in this game because I did it too late, I can see now how I could have done that. That if I had focused a little bit earlier on getting my dreadnoughts out there, getting my technologies moving, I could have dominated in the battle. And and I didn't. And that's a lesson learned. But I, I can see that strategy. And the point where that became clear to me in the game was like a light bulb going off. And and that was actually, it was, it was a great moment, even though I wasn't able to really capitalize on it. But Adam, what about you? I didn't have any up or down moments in this game because before I knew it, this game was over. My goodness, Tim won this game in a matter of minutes. I kept looking up, okay, Tim got a couple of points. One of us will do something to catch him and rein him in. It's not going to be over yet. All of a sudden, Tim's up at like six points. All of a sudden, he's up at eight points. All of a sudden, he plays a card and six rounds in, seven rounds, six rounds into it, he's at 10 points. This game's already over just as I'm starting to get any kind of decent deck going and starting to get some kind of combinations that are working for me. Man, Tim just blazed through us. Well done. I don't know how you did it. It was over before it started. 
nice job, Tim. That was fun watching you. I was kind of wondering whether this was a result of the expansion maybe being swingier, maybe the fact that you can kind of put together some of these strategies, you know, that if you get the right combos together. But I was thinking back, like the technology card I bought, I didn't end up getting anything for it because it was, well, it did bump me up on a track, I guess, you know, when I first bought it, but I didn't get the end game point for it. Um, I did get some benefits on the uh, on the, the shipping to the freighter track, but as you guys mentioned, I didn't get those until the end of the game when I didn't actually need them. They didn't result in a point for me. So most of what I ended up pulling off here was getting a couple early points from Conflict, which you could have done in the base game. I got a point from the guy that I could spend six Solari for, which was a base game card. I got the card that let me move once up all the tracks when I bought it, which was a base game card. Almost everything I did was, was from the base game strategy. So I don't think this was a result of just the expansion being swinging, I think I had a really solid game, you know, a little lucky. Maybe my uh, faction guy who let me, get, you know, get some early three uh, skill point cards for free. Maybe that helped me kind of run my engine a little bit faster or something like that. But um, but I, I don't think, at least in this first play, that the, the expansion itself resulted in the, the way the game played out in a negative way. That's my That's my first take on it anyway. All right, well, would you guys request to play Dune Imperium with the Rise of It? Yeah, absolutely. And with a vengeance, because I really want to go back and I want to, I want to master this game now. It, it, there's enough opportunity out there that I really want to dig into it and I want to explore it. And I think I want to explore it with the expansion. I would do either. I would play the game, the base game, or I would play the expansion. But I think I'd really like to get into the expansion more because I think it added a dimension that's missing a little bit from the base game, which doesn't mean the base game isn't worth it on its own, but I think this really adds something, and I'd really like to dig into that some more. What about you, Adam? Yeah, I agree, Chris. I do love the base game for its, you know, I know what's there, and I know different avenues that I'm comfortable with, but this game, this expansion, just to add so much, and I want to explore it. It's There's a lot that I don't understand, and I want to I have that drive to understand how the cards are going to interact, how the different tracks are going to interact, what different areas of the board are going to give me now. It's, it's not totally clear to me now, and I want to explore all that. I want to find all those opportunities, and I just want to keep playing this game. Tim, what about you? What are your thoughts about the expansion? Yeah, I, um, I've always I've loved Dune, uh, Dune Imperium since the first time we played it. I've, I've, it's grown even more with me over the last year as I've played it probably about 20 times, and I don't ever want to play without this expansion after this first stab at it i thought the variability the different strategies the fun opera new options that you have here without adding a lot of extra complexity was was great this is a really excellent expansion for the more stuff for some of the fixes to balance and just helping smooth out what are viable strategies and give you more options here everything about it is fantastic so i will definitely be requesting to play it i will be purchasing this expansion and i expect to be playing it with this expansion most if not every time I, I play the game in the future wanted to mention really quickly because a game that we kind of talked about in relation to this last year when we reviewed it was lost ruins of arnak and lost ruins also had a recent expansion that came out um, and i just wanted to mention really briefly that that expansion did much the same thing that dune imperium expansion did so if you're interested in that game and curious about the expansion i would also highly recommend it it adds more variability more stuff but also adds a little bit of complexity to the game that was missing before. It gives you some harder choices, some more interesting choices on almost every turn of the game. So piggybacking on this this commentary, I think 
the Lost Ruins of Arnak expansion is also well worth getting if you're a fan of the game, um, the base game on that one as well. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about some things that have been on our table right after this. All right, welcome back. So um, I'll just jump in here with one thing that, uh, you know, that I wanted to talk about. Now, there's two games that I've been playing recently that I really have some thoughts on, and I didn't know which one to talk about, so I put a poll out on Twitter tonight and asked whether we, I should talk about It's a Wonderful Kingdom or if I should talk about Cryo. The results of that came in at exactly 50-50 right before we started recording tonight. So is there is there one of those two games that one of you would like to hear about tonight? I never heard of either <laughs> of them. I'd like to hear about Cryo, because you played it the one time, and I think you were kind of lukewarm, lukewarm on it. So I wouldn't mind hearing your follow-up on Cryo. Yeah, sounds good. So... Cryo is a game that came out in 2021 from Luke Laurie was a designer. There's a co-designer on that as well, put out by Z-Man Games. And this is a game with a very interesting theme. The idea being that you are all on a, a colony ship that crashed. It broke apart, maybe due to sabotage. And so the players in the game are, the, are some of the survivors that are awake. And they're trying to both get underground where it's before it gets uh, to be nighttime and you, you all freeze to death, but also to try to help your other survivors that are in cryo chambers get to the to underground. So one of the main goals, one of the main ways you're going to get points is by moving these little cryo chambers to some underground tunnels on the on the um, the map, the board. But this is all done with a very, very straightforward, simple worker placement mechanism. You have three drone workers. You never get more than that. And you're either on your turn going to place a drone worker out on some spaces out on the board, or you're going to take all of your drones back. And this follows exactly like Luke Laurie's other designs, including Whistle Mountain, including Dwellings of Eldervale, where the kind of the fun mechanism of it is that when you take your drones back, or your workers, you're basically going to be triggering a tableau, kind of an engine that you've built over the course of the game. There's a couple different ways you're going to do that. There are multi-use cards that feel like they came right out of Lagranja, and that you know you can either play it as a ongoing ability, you can play it ship that allows you to carry your cryo chambers down underground, kind of like the wheelbarrows in Lagranja, or you can play it as a um, you can discard it for some resources. So basically, there are these cards that allow you to activate some of these these opportunities and build up your engine. The other thing that's going to happen is whenever you place one of your workers out on a space that gives you resources, it's a little stack of tiles, kind of like Dwellings of Eldervale. So when you take a tile, you can either just immediately get the resource for it, or you can slot it into a space on your board that triggers when you pull the drone back. Slightly more to it than that, but that's about it. It's very straightforward. The game is very quick. Uh, I played a two-player game, played in about 45 minutes. So for a Euro game, first play for me, we whipped right through it. It's got a player-run endgame trigger where essentially every time you pull your workers back, you activate a little event that happens, and there's a certain number of events over the course of the game. So if you want to pull your workers back more frequently, you can speed the game up. And then there's a kind of a clever area control mechanism where as you get to these underground tunnels, you're going to get more points for however many of your cryo chambers are on a specific cave versus your opponents so some some interesting things going on there there's a couple places to be mean in this game fighting for the area control space but also some of those events you can trigger can blow up the cryo chambers from your opponents which is pretty dark considering you're basically killing a human being that's that's still living in that cryo chamber when you do that so it's got a little bit of a possible take that but all in all i was just 
I found the game to be very bland. There is not much exciting happening on your turn. You're putting a work route and you're getting a benefit for it. The benefits aren't very interesting choices. There's a little bit of a race mechanism to it, but it's pretty clear, you know, if, if somebody else doesn't have their cryo chamber on a spot that they could blow up, you need to get your worker off there. So it's not that risky. The area control mechanism with the caves might be a little bit more interesting, except that you don't have a whole lot of shots to get people down there. There's a few different resources you have to manage, and one of them is energy, and the way you get further into the cave is by spending more energy. So... I thought the game was okay. I think I'd be fine playing again. I only played it at two players, and I think that that's probably not the ideal situation because there is a lot of interactivity with the other players, and I didn't feel like there was a lot of tension in the worker placement spaces here. So for me, it's kind of a dud. I think if I was going to play a light to midweight worker placement game, I would even take the classic Lords of Waterdeep over this any day. It just felt pretty flat. It wasn't that interesting, but it did have the advantage of being fairly streamlined and had a little bit of interaction going on. So Adam, did you have any questions about it? Because I knew you were, this was on your list of games you wanted to play this year. Yeah, it's something I've been wanting to try. The expectation has been lowered a little bit. I'd still like to try it, I think, after hearing you talk about it. I was going to ask you, where does this kind of fit on the Luke Laurie games that you mentioned? If you had to rank those three, I think you said Whistle Mountain, Cryo, and Dwellings of Eldervale. How would you kind of rank those? And then how are you feeling about Luke Lurie games in general at this point? I mean, listen, worker placement now has been overdone. And unless it's got a really interesting additional choice to make, like Dune Imperium is a great example where the worker placement is great again for, for a couple of reasons, but one of them being that card deck building piece of combined, that makes it interesting enough. But just straightforward worker placement is just not that interesting anymore. Luke Laurie has done some really cool things with his design, specifically the engine building piece of it. And when you pull your workers back, it still makes that a fun and exciting turn. You get to build that up and kind of do what you want to do. I thought this was the least effective of his three games that I've played, though, even in that aspect of it. It was fine. This was the most streamlined of the three games by far. And so it has that going for it. Um, It was the quickest to play. I think Whistle Mountain is by far the most interesting of his designs. It's got a lot more stuff going on. I think Dwellings of Eldervale has some really fun stuff going on too, but it is rules heavy. It's kind of clunky and just didn't do enough for me to keep me excited. But I think I'd rather play that over Cryo. At least, again, after one two-player game, would be happy to try this in a three or four-player situation. Hey, the one thing I did notice about Cryo that I thought was interesting is that I love the fact that it has the classic... 1970s pinball machine back glass art on it. Nicely done. I think the art is pretty cool in that game, Chris. You bring it up, and I'm glad you mentioned it because it's fun to look at. It is. I actually agree. I think the production in this game is pretty neat. Oh, one other thing that I'd say is a a big negative for it, considering the fact that its big selling point is that it's streamlined and quick to play, is that the setup is a pain in the butt because... Basically, every worker placement space on the board, you have to seed with like four little face-down chits. It's just a pile of setup that just kind of detracts from one of the few things that was pretty neat about it to me. You know, it's interesting. I've heard a couple other reviewers talk about this game recently and very wrong about games, board game barrage. Man, I just don't see what they're seeing in it at all. So maybe it's just a me thing, but um, would still be happy to try it with you, Adam, if you're interested. But I, I found it to be pretty bland um, and, and not too exciting. Okay. All right, well, let's talk about some future takes, some things that are coming down the road that we're excited to play or or back on Kickstarter. Chris, what do you have? My future take this week is a game called Steam Up, A Feast of Dim Sum. It was designed by Pauline Kong, Heyman Lee, and Marie Wong, 
and is published by Hot Banana Games. So this is a Kickstarter that closed, I think it was a few months ago, and it's due for an early 2023 release, but I'm already getting really excited about this game for a few reasons. So first, I've been really interested recently in this ongoing discussion in the board gaming community about cultural appropriation. In other words, you know, these games that lean heavily on elements of culture but are designed by people who are from outside that culture. And the more I think about it, even beyond just the philosophical piece of that, I'm more interested in playing games that can offer me something, at least a little bit, of an authentic cultural experience. So whether I'm reading a book, watching a TV show, playing a game, whatever, it's given me an opportunity to learn something, even if it's just a little something about the world. And in all those situations, I want to be guided by someone who knows what they're talking about. So you wouldn't go to another country, for example, and hire someone who wasn't a local to give you the tour. So that's kind of how I've been feeling about this, these things. And that brings me to Steam Up. Steam Up is the work of designers who are clearly very eager to share a beloved element of their culture. And I think that's amazing. And it's what first caught my eye about the game. Well, yeah, actually, that's not exactly true. What really first caught my eye about this game was the amazing production. Because, man, is this a cool-looking game. The deluxe version features this stack of bamboo steamers, bags of these really cool, realistic-looking 3D dim sum pieces, and a rotating Lazy Susan game board that you use to rotate these six stacks of steamers the players are going to be competing for. So, what's the game all about? Each player becomes one of 12 animals from the Chinese Zodiac that are queued up for the hottest dim sum restaurant in town, each with its own tastes, each has their own food they want to eat, and that makes up the player's goals. You get the right pieces of dim sum to maximize scoring for their unique character. They also have abilities that are different from character to character and that they'll use those to outwit the other players and get their most desired tidbits. So for example, uh, one cute card called the Magician, it's a rabbit, and he can swap out pieces of dim sum to get the one he wants. So you throw into the mix the rotating playboard, some fate and fortune cards to mix things up a little bit, and this game just looks like a blast. So all that said, I think the thing I find most charming about this game is its wit and its really playful sense of humor. That's something that I've come back to many, many times, and I've mentioned in a few games that we've played, I love a game that has a sense of humor. And an example is that magician card I just told you about. But the other animal cards are also incredibly adorable. There's a monkey that's called the Naughty Kid, this little pig on his cell phone known as the Food Blogger, and this little Shih Tzu puppy called the Loyal Customer. So it's just so clear to me that a lot of love went into this game, and I think that really shows. So my only regret is that I've got to wait until 2023 to get my hands on this one. So you backed it, Chris? I did back it, yeah. Is it still open for um, for like late late backers or anything like that? I think you can still late back, and I went to their website, and I think you can, I'm not sure if it was pre-ordering it or late backing it on Kickstarter, but I think there is still an opportunity if someone's interested in looking into this game. Okay. So I looked at it a little bit, and just based on the game description and the components, it looks very, very family weight, very simple, um, you know, from a mechanism perspective. And it's rated right now 1.0 out of 5 on BGG, which is, you know, going to be a very lightweight game. Are you, are you kind of looking at this game as one of those lightweight, fun 
games that you'll play with your gaming friends as a filler? Or are you looking at this as like a, a family, something that you, you bought with the intent of kind of playing with your family, with your young son? What do you think is the target audience for this game? I think you're right. I mean, the level of play here is relatively simple, but I think the answer is that it could be either one of those. It could be a filler game or it could be a game you play with your family. It's not going to be clearly a main event game for a big game night. In that sense, I look at it a lot like Fossilus. Mm -hmm. It's a good, solid game with a really cool production that makes it fun to actually put on the table and look at. And if it weren't for the fact that my wife really doesn't like Fossilus, um, I'd probably play it more often. My son likes it, and we played it a few times. And if I had folks around who wanted to play it with me, you know, I'd be happy to, even if it wasn't just kids. So I think it could do either one. Yeah, it reminded me of Fossilus when I was reading about it, and that Fossilus is a pretty simple order, uh, what do you call it, a, a kind of an order-filling game. Yeah. You know, the idea being that you're basically just trying to collect the right type of resources. Yeah. And the way you do that is the game, you know, as efficiently as possible. And I feel like this is going to be similar so it was an interesting enough puzzle, but it was pretty simple what you're trying to do. You know, there wasn't much complexity to the choices. I think it's great for a family weight game, obviously, and, and with the right audience. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this one comes out. You know, I mean, there are some games that are definitely family weight, but can still be a blast. I think of games like Sushi Go is a great example mm -hmm. of something that's got yep. very simple rule set and, and very simple choices, but still a whole lot of fun to play. So maybe this will be one of those. Yeah, and those can also be great games if you want to play something with folks that are not gamers that are over. Right. You know, that, that's a nice thing to have available to you. So what about you, Tim? What's your future take this week? I want to talk about a game that I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of at this point, but Stonemaier Games, uh, whenever they put out a game, it's kind of a big event. They usually do one to two a year. The game that they just announced is a game called Libertalia Winds of Galecrest. Now, Libertalia is a uh, pre-existing game. I think it was printed in like 2007 or something like that, maybe 2012. But it's an older game and it's a pirate-themed game. And so what Stonemaier Games did is they worked with the original designer, which is Paolo Mori, to basically kind of create a updated and refined version of Libertalia. That's pretty exciting. Libertalia has been out of print for a little while. It's known as kind of a fun strategic party game is the way that they explain it on the game description for the original game and it it kind of is that it's it's essentially a game where it's played over three rounds and every round everyone's going to put hidden cards down at the same time and when the cards are revealed they're going to interact with the other cards in different ways you're trying to basically be the highest numbered card that shows up because you get the best choice of loot but sometimes the abilities on the other cards may interfere with that they may take things from you they may get extra bonuses so it's kind of a fun like everybody's got the same cards but you don't know what the other people are going to play and you're kind of playing these mind games to take advantage of it so libertalia winds of gale crest is essentially re-implementing that it's got beautiful new artwork and kind of rethemed. it's still a pirate theme but they're calling them sky pirates so it's kind of a fantastical theme where there are these ships sailing through the air and the crew, instead of traditional human pirates, they're all like anthropomorphic animal pirates. But the artwork on this is done by uh, Lamaro Smith, who I, I don't know if he's done any other uh, board games before, but I looked up his portfolio a little bit. And it's just beautiful, beautiful, colorful, really, really wonderful artwork. He's a Caribbean-born artist, I believe, which is great for a pirate-themed game. You know, it kind of really fits that, uh, that somebody who's born there is going to be able to bring that theme home well. So I'm pretty excited about this. I, one, it's a game that I would always wanted to play. And two, you know, Stonemaier always does interesting things with their games. And even the ones that don't end up sticking around in my collection, I always have some fun playing them. 
and uh, enjoy kind of experiencing them and, and checking out what's offered. So I'm looking forward to Libertalia, Winds of Gale Crest. This is supposed to go on pre-order. I think early March it's going to be on pre-order from Stonemeyer Games directly, and then it'll be in retail a couple months after that. So you can get this pretty quickly. We're going to try to do kind of a review of Libertalia. Sometimes Stonemeyer puts out their games on tabletopia right before they they do the pre-orders if they do we're going to play it on tabletopia and we'll release a full episode about it if they don't we're going to play the original libertalia and review that for you and then we'll talk about winds of gale crest and what's been announced and what's what the changes are and just kind of talk about what you know what we think of the original game and what we think of how the new changes and, and updates are going to impact the new game uh, so to give you our thoughts on that so you can expect that episode in a couple weeks but um uh, yeah, looking forward to this game a lot. I, it looks like a lot of fun to me. So um, I think after we get a chance to play and review it, I'll, I'll decide if I'm actually going to be one of those ones pre-ordering it. And talk about a game that deserves an update. I mean, this thing was in drastic need of a refresh. I, <laughs> I've looked at it and we, we played one game and you know, I have to admit that I didn't even read any rules or watch a rules video. So I was just, you know, click and pray. Uh, so I can't say much about the gameplay, and I'll save that for the, the review episode. But man, I will tell you what a turnoff the visuals were on this thing. Yeah, I just found the art so unappealing that you know a game with great mechanisms can survive that. Like Lagranja, which we talked about recently, is a good example. This game ain't no Lagranja, and it has Lagranja level or worse art. Yeah, so. Man, I'm looking forward to actually seeing this with something cool. And I, I saw a little bit of the art you mentioned, and it looks really interesting, particularly those anthropomorphic animal pirates, sky pirates. Yeah, totally agreed. I mean, I think that is one of the ugliest games I've ever seen. It, it has this kind of photorealistic pirate art on each of the cards represents a pirate, and it almost looks like they took a photo of, of some like idiot doing cosplay in pirate gear. <laughs> and I think they either did or, or like used those as artistic representations. It's so ugly. And, you know, the rest of it is just really boring cardboard chits. One of the interesting things about this, though, and this ha seems to happen every time Stonewire releases a game, I think because it gets a lot of attention, it's popular. But if you look at the BGG ratings for this game that has not been released yet, right, 50% of the comments in there are rated a 1 because they said it should have stuck with the original pirate art. Oh, come on. Like, how could you look at that game and then say that this is a downgrade? You know, fine, you wanted a pirate game, that's fair. But to, to complain about the, the art here or the production um, is insane to me. So I think it's I think we got a couple like um, very vocal uh, people that just don't like Stonemaier games, to be honest, because I see this happen <laughs> with every, every one of his releases. Uh, but I, I'm excited. I, I think the reception to the game itself, you know, we'll see how that goes, because, again, we haven't played it enough to, to really be able to say whether it's a keeper for me. But it looks like a lot of fun. Our one playthrough of it seemed like there was a lot of fun game in there. So I'm excited to see how this one goes over. And the, the new art production to me looks fantastic. Look forward to giving it a try. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, that will wrap up this episode. Uh, before we wrap up, though, I do want to mention, if you don't follow us on Twitter already, um, I would recommend come out and join our community there at BG underscore hot takes. Me, Chris, and Adam are all pretty active on there. Um, Jen, one of our co-hosts, will occasionally join in and, and uh, leave some comments. But um, we'd love to you know chat with you there. I leave a poll there weekly that we talk about, as you heard at the beginning of this episode. So if you want to be part of the poll or even have your comments mentioned on the air, you can leave that on Twitter. Uh, but the other thing I want to ask is if you enjoy the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
because it does help more people find the show. And uh, I wanted to call out a listener this week that left us a very nice review on Apple Podcasts. This is uh, Jim the Gray, interacts with us on Twitter as well. And Jim said, I wasn't looking for this podcast when I found it, but I'm so glad I did. I binged all their episodes over a two-week period, and now they have me looking forward to Monday. Good friends who are passionate about games, talking about the stuff they're playing. I love that format, and this pod is my new favorite in the genre. All five regular contributors bring great, useful insights. Their chemistry is fantastic, and they don't waste words. Thank you, Jim. That's really awesome of you to say. Really appreciate it. Please, if, if you uh, if you enjoy the show also, leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on air. That will wrap us up. So until next week, take care, everybody. Have a good night, all. Bye-bye.